millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Welcome to Wood Talk. For woodworkers, by woodworkers. Now here are three guys who take big pieces of wood and make them smaller. Mark, Matt, and Shannon. All right, welcome to Wood Talk number 174 for March 17th, 2014. On today's show, Levi has some questions about plywood cases. Steve wants to plain dried glue. John wants the skinny on angled mortises. Chris wants our thoughts on the iBox jig. Chris with a C is considering cutting dovetails with a tenon saw. And Chris... I don't know. Is that the same, Chris? He's trying to choose between a fret saw and a coping saw. But, uh, you know, we've got all that and more coming up. So let's hear a quick word from our sponsor, Bruso Hardware. Bruce, whoops. <laughs> Today's show is sponsored by Bruso Hardware. Bruso has been manufacturing high-precision woodworking hardware in the U.S. for over 20 years. The entire line is produced at their factory in Belleville, New Jersey, and is available through distributors worldwide. View the complete product line, including knife hinges, butt hinges, quadrant hinges, and more at Bruso.com. As a special offer to Wood Talk listeners, use the code WOODTALK at checkout for a 10% discount. Hey, there's one thing that I know is if it's made in Jersey, it's got to be good. Okay, yeah. No, no? We'll go with that. <laughs> yeah. Did I miss the mark there? <laughs> is it down at the Jersey Shore? Is that where it's good? Oh, no, no, no. You don't go to the Jersey Shore for good stuff. Um, okay. You know, I should uh, mention at the top here, recurring donors that we always appreciate at woodtalkshow.com. Look on the left-hand side and you'll see links where you can help us out and give us a little bit of that support. And uh, I'd like to thank some jerk in, the, in Woodlands, Texas. And that's not that's not my words. He actually specifically wanted to be referred to as some jerk in Woodlands, so you might Texas. Wanna, might want to rephrase that. But yeah. uh, it is what it is. That's just not and my words. for some reason, all of our donations have dried up due to Mark. <laughs> it's crazy. <laughs> so, yes, thank you, jerk. And uh, the rest of you fine folks who want to help support us, we always appreciate it. And let's jump in on uh, what's on the bench here. I'll go first. 
So finished up a lot of the shop stuff that I've been working on and it feels good because I actually had like calendar time slotted just for shop improvement projects and I don't feel guilty about it. It was on the calendar. So feeling real good about it. So all the drawers and doors are finally done. Got that little uh, thing I was talking about last week, the little um, cubby thing with the lids. Got that done. And was, the, what was the, wasn't that the fest cubby, the fest cubby. Yeah, it's fest got, cubby. it does have a lot of festool in it, but I'm trying not to store the, uh, festool sustainers in it. I mean, there was a few that can't be avoided, but, um, for the most part, I'm trying to put the sustainers in storage somewhere because they just take up so much space. So here's the funny thing that I found with shop furniture. If you want to have some really like a frustrating day, post a picture <laughs> of a piece of shop furniture <laughs> on Facebook. <laughs> and and I you know the it, the whole criticism and feedback it just comes with the territory that's what we do that's you know I'm fairly used to it but some of it can be a little bit harder to hear than others um the thing is you post a picture of something you built for yourself it's very specific in in the need that it satisfies for me and I realize the lidded top is probably not going to be good for most people who have a problem with cluttering up horizontal surfaces and yes. that's a realistic problem in fact I'd say for most people that's a problem but I'm pretty sure I'm familiar with myself um, and and my personal habits. And I know that I'm pretty good about keeping my horizontal surfaces clean. And this is now an additional horizontal surface uh, that, that I will have in the shop. So it's even less likely to become too cluttered that I can't lift that lid. Um, you know, secondly, the lid is split. So if I have two or three things on there, I can just shift them over to the right or to the left. And I had people giving me crap about my choice to have this lid on there. And I'm like, guys, I didn't build it for you. <laughs> you know, this is my I did, shop. I right? did want to let you know that I thought that that would be a real issue for, for the rest of us. Thanks for the feedback, so, Matt. Yeah, no problem. Uh, but you know, ultimately, it's a very easy, uh, adaptable design. If you wanted to change that lid to maybe five drawers, but for me, I wanted to maximize my storage space. And drawers, if you think about it, even if you use like half inch stock, you're going to lose a half inch on each side for the stock itself, plus another half inch on each side for whatever uh, pulls you use. And I didn't want to lose that much space to drawers. So now I just lift these things up, stuff that I don't need very often, like accessories for the routers and edge guides and all that stuff. And it's just there when I need it. And it just isn't something I'm going to need all that often. So, uh, but yeah, it was a lot of fun posting that and getting the feedback. Um, well, I'm glad that you were able to give people this outlet for their creative and design <laughs> uh, aspects to get it out of their yeah, system. Yeah. Well, and I don't want to come across like I don't appreciate it. I post it because I want to share it with people, but I also want to make sure people understand that when they build theirs, they can do whatever they want to do. <laughs> that's right. right? And that's the joy of it, right? That's the well, beauty of custom woodworking. Right? You know, that's one thing that none of us is short on ideas when it comes to shop furniture. Oh, yeah. And like shop improvements. Every single one of us has like seven different opinions and they mm -hmm. all contradict one another, actually. So it's, <laughs> yeah. It's, I, I am curious, though, how... Um, like, is there any kind of, uh, whatchamacallit, kickstand or whatever to keep the lid open? Or well, is it just kind of a lift it up, grab what you need with one hand, and drop it down again? That's still undecided. It ultimately should have something like that. If it's about three inches away from the wall, you can get the lid up past vertical. And as long as right. it goes past vertical, the wall is there and it stands up just fine. But if I if I push it back 
to the wall, which is really where I want it. I, I don't want to consume any more space than I need to. If I push it back, then I can't actually open the lid past that vertical point. So, um, so it would need some sort of help there. And I guess eat, eat like Rockler's torsion hinges, if you wanted to use those, but they're like 40 bucks. Uh, yeah, so no, that, that's not that the seems right a bit much for shop furniture. <laughs> yeah. And there's all types of, uh, lid catches, latches and supports and things that I could uh, look into. You could even go for something, uh, you know, very, very low tech and just have a piece of wood that swivels out as a kickstand, like you said. So uh, I'm undecided on that, but it, it probably would will need something. Now, whatever you decide to go with, though, you are going to have to put out some sort of disclaimer or uh, prepare yourself for the number of <laughs> safety issues that are going to come with that. Like, are those not going to slam onto Mateo's hand when he uh, lifts those up for you or yourself? Well, the way I look at it is it's only going to happen once, and then he's going to find out that that doesn't feel good. <laughs> you you know, I go. said the same thing when the kids were young, and I took the face off the fan, and they're like, are you worried about your kid putting your finger in it? I'm like, just watch. It'll happen the, once. The funny thing is, that's not even true. It won't just happen once. Kids are weird like that, and they forget that, oh, I almost lost a finger, but they're going to just shove their hand right back in it. So, Or it's more like ninja time. <laughs> watch how fast I can move this. It'll never touch me. Yeah, Did yeah, it again. Exactly. Um, <laughs> you know, the other thing I wanted to mention and this actually is the thing I'm most excited about. I've had my Powermatic planer for a, a, quite a while now. It's the 15-inch helical head planer. Um, you know, Powermatic's really considered a fairly high-quality uh, tool manufacturer, and I was very disappointed that all this time I've been dealing with uh, Snipe. It, it hasn't been severe, but it's enough. It's enough to make that part of the board not usable. Uh, I guess if, if you're new to woodworking, I should mention that Snipe is this, uh, this thing that happens when you put boards through a plane, or actually other tools can cause it too. But at the leading and or trailing edge, you get this little extra divot. So it's a little bit thinner at the edge. Now, there are traditional ways to combat Snipe, and I've tried all of those, like raising the in-feed and out-feed beds or lifting the board as it goes through and lifting it a little bit as it comes out the other end. Uh, none of that stuff was working. I'd even uh, changed the pressure feed rollers, changed the actual, um, you can tighten them or loosen them up, and I've done all types of settings. I could not get rid of the Snipe, but thankfully I have a drum sander, so a lot of the stuff that I would get right out of the planer would go right into the drum sander to smooth it out and, and make that last part of the board usable. And I was talking with David Marks, who recently got the same planer, and he did the setup with, with a friend of his, and he mentioned that, you know, you have to be very careful that the rollers, not just the pressure, the spring, uh, you have to worry about that, but you have to just make sure they're placed at the right height, which is exactly 20 thousandths of an inch below the cutter head. So that's something that's set at the factory. And I have checked my rollers in the past and they were fine. So I checked them again the, uh, yesterday and they were both just a little bit over 20,000. So not a big deal. So I made the adjustment and then I checked the chip breaker. Oddly enough, the chip breaker was about twice as far down as it should have been. And oh. so the chip breaker is very firm. So as something, the roller pushes it through the chip breaker makes contact and is actually putting almost an, like an artificially excessive amount of pressure downward on the board at that point. And that seemed to be the cause of the snipe. So mm -hmm. I lifted it up a little bit, raised it up to 20,000. So it's even with the rest of the, the, the front and back roller and the cutter head and or 20 below 20 thousandths below the cutter head and boom, the snipe is gone. Hmm. Very cool. Right? I mean, yeah. it's what, one of those things that just drives you nuts. Like, this tool should not perform at this level. And it, right. was, it was bugging the heck out of me. And uh, and just this one mention from, from David, he's like, yeah, you just got to make sure that everything, all three, the rollers and the chip breaker are all 20 thousandths below. And that should do it. And sure enough, it did. So super excited about that. Um, that's kind of a big deal for me. 
That's not cool because that should be something that all of us have to deal with. And now here, the two of you, <laughs> David and you, are totally circumventing the snipe issue that the rest of us are going to be facing. Yeah, yeah, snipe. Uh, snipe is no fun. No. Well, I'm just trying to think. I didn't even know there was a chip breaker. <laughs> yeah, I didn't <laughs> on know a planer. Yeah, well, I, I guess if that's... I don't know if every model has it. If the little uh, lunchbox planers, I'm not sure if they have them. But it's uh, right after the leading infeed. No, yeah, the leading uh, infeed roller. Uh, there's a chip breaker there, and huh. yeah, very interesting. It was definitely a nice lesson for me. So something that I'll be able to pass on, and, and hopefully, if I do like a setup video in the future, I'll be able to to mention it a little bit more and give that experience to people. So. Uh, Shannon, what's going on with you? Well, I have uh, moved a little bit into shop work myself. Cool. Um, I've got some some downtime in between projects, and actually, my my next really big project is to finally take care of some of my shop plans and 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 do a little bit of renovation. Nice. Um, so I, you know, I'm putting up a you know a whole, I guess you call it a false wall. It's not really a false wall. I'm just putting a wall up over a cinder block something that I can actually hang things on a little bit more easily than, than <laughs> into cinder block. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, just a, a lot of kind of cleaning up and creature comfort type changes. Uh, you know, I was originally thinking about going with a, you know, brand new floor. And the more I think about it, the more I'm just going to put down kind of the puzzle piece uh, matting or whatever on the floor. Because right. I am still working in a garage. Um, but before any of that stuff can happen is the fun part, the spring cleaning and the demo, uh, demolition work. And I actually started that this week. And uh, it was funny, some of the things you find hidden in a corner of the shop or <laughs> on top of a cabinet. And uh, I, I actually, um, I ran across this table saw leg tapering jig that I actually made at the Acanthus workshop. Hmm. Um, and it, I, I just put, posted a picture online saying, hey, anybody want this? And oh, I saw that, Chuck yeah. Bender spoke up. He's like, hey, that's like history. Because, you know, of course, the Acanthus Workshop, at least as it was, doesn't exist anymore. Yeah. Because Chuck has now moved to the Midwest. So it's like, wow, I think I actually may hang that on the wall. You know, I think it's appropriate in the hand tool shop that I have like a table saw jig hanging well, on the wall. Well, I hang <laughs> hand saws on the wall. So it right, just makes that's sense. what I'm thinking. <laughs> Turn around is fair play in this situation. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Right. So it was just, it was, it was a cleansing moment, if you will, to start pulling some of this stuff out. Cause I, I've been pretty good about keeping my scrap wood problem under control, but you just get these little things from jigs to just little crap, you know, um, just, stacking up in corners and things like that. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was really interesting because I have uh, this whole row, this whole um, row along one wall of fixed base cabinetry. And I demolished one piece of the cabinet. It's all a bunch of individual cabinets that are kind of either screwed together or they're tied together with one countertop. And as I start to take those things apart, what's really interesting is what you find under the cabinets. <laughs> it's like when you move that sofa, you know, to vacuum under it once every six months. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it was a little disturbing. You get like 10, 10 pounds there. of Alex hair under there. Yeah. Well, and, and those screws that you drop and you can't ever find, you know, <laughs> yeah. Oh, I found them. That's great. <laughs> nice. Cool. Yeah. Sweet. Uh, oh, is it, is it my turn? It could be if you want it to it be. Could be. Well, we can go on to that. All right. Well, <laughs> speaking of thickness planers, Mark, as you started to go into this one, I'm thinking, oh my gosh, once again, you and I have done something very similar. Because you were talking about the helical cutter head. Right. right. And 
this weekend, I just posted a video where I have dueling thickness planers. It's not as much fun as dueling pianos or dueling banjos, but in the basement workshop, I had a little bit of fun just uh, playing around with a new Steel City uh, 13-inch lunchbox planer with a helical-style cutter head on it, and I ended up taking some really beautiful, highly figured curly maple and I ran it through both of them, and I was really shocked at the result of that cutter head. Now, I'm pretty sure if I took this cutter head off and put it on the rigid one, that my old one, I'd get the same result. So it's definitely the uh, the cutter head itself. But sure. talked for years about you know, well, the helical style uh, cutter head is really really awesome. I ought to take a look at that, and then just never did anything with it. And now that I've had that I've had a chance to use this, I'm like, why why didn't I do this earlier? <laughs> it's, it's nice, isn't crazy. it? I mean, yeah, it especially I ended up taking like a very very light pass on the last one. And it's almost like I, I use my card scraper or something on it. It is so smooth and very glass-like. It's just it, – it's phenomenal. It's, yeah. it's absolutely beautiful. Where, and again, I compared it to the old one, which had the two blades and that one. You see those little ridge, uh, ridge marks in it as it's running through. So, yeah, pretty, pretty darn cool. Uh, so if anybody's interested in finding out about like you know a little bit of that, that's check out the video. Uh, but yeah, it's, it was, it was a lot of fun. Somebody sent me a a thing, a question, and I was trying to look it up to see if it was on the video at my, at my website. And they said, you know what you should do is take one and then flip the other one upside down behind it. So that way, as it's running through, you could get both sides simultaneously in one pass. (laughs) And I'm thinking, you know, let's do it. (laughs) Yeah. You know, we've got one of those at the lumber yard, and it was only, I think, about $110,000. So you oh, could really? save a lot of money by going that route. Mm. Yeah. Now, first, I would probably have to create a some sort of uh, holding device to have the other one upside down. Now, I'm sure I probably, if I posted that on Facebook, uh, a few people would have some suggestions about how I could do that or how to rebuild <laughs> it if they were to do it. But it would definitely be pretty interesting. Yeah, Maybe you, for but while you're at it, while you're at it, get like um, a couple of those handheld power planers and put them on either <laughs> side of it so you can S4S aboard in one pass. Oh, that's so smart. You could build this amazing four-sided planing jig. And that would just, be cool. Oh, dude. You know what would be really awesome is if I could get it to articulate and it would just move around like a robot. Like it's going to flip into position and then it gets like locked in and it, and if it has any twist, it can just automatically adjust for the twist to remove it. Oh. Mm, man, it's almost like you wouldn't even need to be there. You know, you, yeah. like, woodworking can just be totally the spectator sport now. Dude, I would just simply... App. I would just buy yeah. rough lumber just to plane it. I wouldn't build anything. I would just do it purely for the planing fun. Oh, man. Sounds like a great time. Whew, there we go. All Good right. Time. Uh, Good time. Let's move into what's new. And I've got a, a, a late-breaking link that I wanted to add in here in addition to what we have there. Um, did you guys see the link I posted and Vic shared it with me? It's an old SNL clip. Um, called the anal yes. retentive carpenter. Oh yeah, a classic Phil Hartman. Oh <laughs> man, great. right? Is he not the best? He's he's so great. But um, it's it really does uh, kind of shine a light on how ridiculous some of the stuff. Now, not everybody, you know, not all of us are anal retentive like this. But I think even the most practical uh, of us woodworkers has this tendency with some things. Maybe not everything, but some things to be this way. And of course, this is at an extreme. So the way I look at it is if you can't laugh at yourself, then you have no business laughing at other people. And I love laughing at other people. Absolutely. <laughs> so yes. I, was, I was cracking up the whole time I watched this, but uh, we'll put the link in there so you guys can enjoy this too. It's a classic SNL skit and it's fantastic. You know, that's the one reason why people always ask me why I say horrible things about myself. It's because I plan on saying even worse things about you. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> right. Evens it 
out a little bit. Exactly. Well, hey, so we have this next one that comes in from David. And uh, Mark, this one, he was definitely saying that Mateo may need this. I don't know if you had a chance to look at it. He said this is kind of a, a kind of a geeky thing, but the video does have a bunch of action woodworking in the very beginning of it. Mm-hmm. And this uh, this very uh, creative dad, somebody who I now hate because I feel like the worst dad in the world. <laughs> it for makes not you look up bad. Something simple. Oh yeah. It makes me look <laughs> it makes any dad that doesn't build this look like the worst dad in the world. Essentially he created a mission control desk and we're talking about there's lights and, and buzzes and somehow there's like an iPad that's hooked up to it and all this stuff. So, uh, his son feels like he is right there in the heart of launching any space mission. And so yeah, awesome. I'm, I'm bad dad. I'm bad dad. bad dad. I need to get you a mug that says, uh, oh, what was the one? Oh, man. There was one that Nicole had that uh, said something about like being a mediocre mom or something. But it's, it's I, I'm an okay dad. <laughs> like okayest dad ever or something. But anyway. That's awesome. Well, after, you know, totally <laughs> sidetracked today, my son was supposed to start cross country and it turns out that I forgot yet again another one of the forms. So rather than getting to run, he got to sit there and watch them run. <laughs> that sounds fun. That actually might raise you and. In- his esteem. Oh, you mean I don't get to run today? Yeah, my dad. He he didn't fill out the permission slip. <laughs> well, the good news is though, he at least got he got the the new running shoes, and he looked pretty spiffy in his running suit. So you know, right. hey, you can't as have long everything. As he looks good in the gear. He doesn't actually have to run. <laughs> there you go. Come on. <laughs> well, there is a a blog post that came out of uh, Benchcraft today. That's the the Workbench Vice guys, and I, I found it really fascinating because if you've bought any kind of Benchcrafted stuff. Um, they usually have, you know, their little bit of bling is the wooden handle that comes with it, and it's made out of cocobolo. And that is a, a species that uh, has recently been listed um, as an Appendix 2 CITES species, meaning it's being heavily regulated. Um, it, it's, it's not necessarily endangered, but the current trade means that it, it has a potential to become endangered. And, uh, of course, it's raised the prices of the species pretty dramatically. And you get guys like Benchcrafted, um, the screwdriver guys, Elkhead Tools, they make their handles out of Cocobolo. Mm-hmm. And it's become this kind of this really great accent species. Well, it's going away really quick because the price is, you know, tripled and quadrupled in some instances. And um, Jamil was looking for alternatives and trying to keep the same look. And of all things, he used that turning stuff, Dima wood. That really terrible, awful, like, I don't even know what kind of wood it is, but it's dyed and then laminated together into this something out of, you know, Alice in Wonderland. And he turned the knobs and he's got a side by side and you will be hard pressed to figure out which one is actually Cocobolo and which one is whatever their burgundy something diamond wood. Burgundy. No kidding. So this is that stuff that's like a layup, a plywood layup almost for for turning blanks. Yeah, like really nasty, tacky looking crap. Wow. Um, And it was just, it was really interesting to me because to me, Benchcrafted is one of those companies that almost personifies like boutique woodworking company. Like there is nothing low quality in what they make. Mm -hmm. And they replaced this really exotic, very expensive wood with, you know, forgive me, cheap ass (laughs) turning gimmick um but it just it just reminded me of of you know i'm i'm not you know an eco-nazi type person who's constantly thinking oh we've got to be careful of our wood usage because i I recognize that you got to buy wood in order to make a market for it but i thought it was a really cool 
kind of think outside the box solution for um, you know a species that's just not going to be available any longer. Yeah. So, well, and it, it, it really is a convincing um, substitute. Uh, this just reading on their website, it's a highly engineered wood plastic composite that has physical and mechanical properties of high density hardwood, acrylic, polycarbonate plastics, and brass. Here, brightly dyed northern hardwood veneers. So it's pretty much, according to this, birch that's just been dyed, and then it's right. got resin uh, impregnated or, or layers of resin in there. That is pretty darn cool. Yeah, Good I just thought it was, it was, I don't know, it was something worth highlighting yeah. uh, as a company that's kind of taken a cool step. And, you know, in the grand scheme of things, it's a little tiny knob as part of their, their um, hardware. Yeah. But if you think about the impact that knob makes, like I have, I have a Benchcrafted Invice, and that little wooden knob, it's just awesome. Yeah. You know, it's, it's like it's a, that a perfect contrast element. It's like a Porsche with a really fancy gear shifter knob dealy. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like a really nice one. Exactly. Or, or like a Bubinga edged plywood doors. Oh yeah. That's the stuff. Oh yeah. That's the stuff. <laughs> um, you know, or, in the description that you're reading, you, you missed the most important part. And that's where Jamil says, yes, that ghastly multicolored birch plywood based resin impregnated clown barf abomination. Clown barf. <laughs> <laughs> That we've all seen on too many amateur knife makers' blades. <laughs> I don't know. I don't see that stuff come around that often. I guess I don't look at that turnings, you know, like gimmicky looking turnings like that very much. But yeah, see, it's anytime you buy something from like craft supplies or Penn State Industries, you'll yeah. get like seven catalogs a week from them. Yeah, and uh, I will usually just flip to the what's new section to see if anything new has come out, and invariably there's like a new color, and it's like, oh, that's nasty. <laughs> I won't be getting that. Um, all right. Well, I'm going to do two and one here because I forgot mine at the beginning. Um, there is a Reddit, well, was a Reddit contest. I probably should have mentioned it earlier in case someone wanted to sign up, but it was kind of a Reddit only thing uh, where they could build a project that we've done on the Wood Whisperer website and they have a chance to win guild memberships and all kinds of stuff. So, uh, excuse me, the contest is over. So sorry about that. But if you want to go and check out uh, the people who did build, there was about 10 entries and they just picked anything that we've made over the years. And um, there's quite a few there. So uh, take a look at it. I'll put the link in the show notes. The Reddit forum, by the way, the woodworking forum there is actually pretty darn good uh, as far as like woodworking online forum style environments and communities go. It's I'm very impressed with it. I've done a couple of AMAs there where you could just kind of literally ask me anything and uh, it, it was a lot of fun. So those guys seem pretty cool there. And gals. I just thought that was kind of a loaded statement. As far as online forum style things go, <laughs> it's pretty good. Okay, well, that bar is pretty damn low. It is, so. it is. It's, you know, it's not the highest compliment, but it is a compliment nonetheless. <laughs> uh, the second one I have here is, where are we? This one was sent in by Dusty. He says, I'm sure you've already seen this vid, but if not, check it out here. And it's at TimberFrameTools.com. It says, it's a pretty neat video for all of us science nerds regarding plain irons and chip breakers and their relationship to the quality of cut. I'll be honest, I didn't watch it, uh, but <laughs> but I did look at the uh, like the thumbnail. This looks like, did you guys notice this is Wilbur Pan's upload? Yeah, I was going to say he, uh, Dusty had even mentioned him in the uh, the post, if I remember correctly, okay. uh, thanking him for it. The, the whole thing is in, I want to say it's Japanese, and so it is subtitled. So if you don't like subtitles, if you don't like French films, <laughs> there's a good chance you won't like this video all that much. But uh, yeah, it's pretty neat. I watched the first uh, half of it, and it was it was it was pretty interesting. Does it satisfy? Uh, it, it satisfied me at that moment because it was during my bathroom break at work, <laughs> which so. any, just about anything will do. Yes. <laughs> I was even reading an email from you. <laughs> there you go. Cool. Well, I'll have to check it out later then. 
Sweet. Hey, well, we have one from here from Glenn speaking of another video. And he says, okay, this video isn't distressing, but about distressing. Well, mm. it, it might actually be a bit distressing. This guy, and he's a, uh, Glenn was saying that he's from his hometown of Winnipeg up there in Canada. Hey, eh? uh, He has a unique way of distressing his work. Keep watching to about the three minute, 45 second point and watch out. I know you've had a lot of questions over the years on how to distress furniture. You may or may not want to suggest this one. Uh, so for those of you who are Great dying to know, Glenn. <laughs> what's he, what's he do? I didn't watch this one either. Uh, he uses a shotgun to distress <laughs> the furniture. <laughs> That's awesome. Yes. Yeah. And, it, and I, I will give it, it is really, really neat. Some of the, uh, the marks that are coming off of it, the, uh, the pellets and then when he go when he does his finishing process over the top of it. So he'll create the piece and it's actually the piece that he's showing in there is a, like a, a, a bar table with a couple of chairs that he made kind of a neat pieces, uh, and he, it's, I want to say it's out of pine or something, but anyways, he distresses it with the shotgun and then he puts the stain on it and it gives it a lot of character. I don't think my neck of the woods being in the city, they will allow me to do this right out back. Maybe. Cops just come up to your house. What, sir, what are you doing? I'm a uh, distressing furniture. What's exactly. It, what's it look like I'm doing? Oh, it looks no, like you're, you're actually distressing things. your neighbors. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> nice. This brings up something, though. If you were to load a shotgun with something like rock salt, um, could that be a form of sanding? Ooh, if it's a good fi- yeah, if it's fine enough, it's like sandblasting, right? It's a type of sanding that everyone can get behind. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, I don't, I don't know if you're aware of this, but down in Florida, there's an obscure law that you can just set up a shotgun or a gun range anywhere in your, your yard. It doesn't matter how close you are to your neighbors. You can do this. So maybe we can get Tom Iovino to try that out for us. Yeah, let us know how it works. That's a great idea. <laughs> All right. Well, the last thing I've got here, I just wanted to throw it out that um, the final schedule and list of speakers for Woodworking in America coming up in September this year down in um, uh, Winston-Salem, North Carolina. Mm -hmm. That is now posted. So woodworkinginamerica.com. And actually, we mentioned him earlier. Wilbur Penn is going to be teaching a couple classes, I think. I cannot wait to sit in the front row and just stare. Heckle, heckle. Yeah, it's it looks like a pretty good lineup. There's some a, quite a few new names, so it stands to be a pretty good conference this year. Good as always. Hello, Bird and Shannon Shop. <laughs> is that spring? Spring is here already. Nice. So, uh, is the bird actually you... in your shop or? <clears throat> no, no, it's um in the like the family room of the house. Oh, and I see. I can close like seven doors between me and that accursed animal. It just makes it through. It's <laughs> unbelievable. I thought it was yeah. the low end frequencies. Didn't we learn that recently that the low end frequencies are the ones that travel through? Uh, what's up yes. with that? You know, get yourself a big tapestry, maybe two or three, and smother the bird with it. And then that should take care of the sound. I'll put the bird in a vacuum tank and just see what happens. You know what you could do? No. You just bring the bird in and just spray some lacquer innocently. <laughs> Because, you know, our bird's like super sensitive to stuff like that. Um, bird lovers are going to hate us right yes. now. <laughs> and there goes one of our sponsors coming up soon. Bird, bird World. world. <laughs> bird World. <laughs> okay. Uh, it's funny that we said that at the same time. All right. Let's go into kickback. Yeah, let's do that. And the first one here is from Jared Swamp Ash. He refers to himself. He says, on the last episode, you guys discussed hybrid table saws, and one thing that wasn't mentioned that I think is a big factor is that hybrid saws still have table-mounted trunnions, which if you've ever had to align your miter slots to the blade on a contractor saw, you know how terrible it is. 
I'm not saying that it may be worth the extra $500 for a full-blown cabinet saw, but still something to think about. Uh, we got a lot of emails about this. <laughs> right. Like, yeah. statement of like the year. 10, 10 or 15 emails about this. So that was definitely one detail that I missed out on. But doesn't this kind of show you maybe why the whole hybrid thing fell out of favor? Because ultimately, if you're going to do something that looks like a cabinet saw, you may as well just have a lower cost cabinet saw instead of one that has this fundamental, fundamentally more difficult adjustment to make when you're calibrating. Right. Absolutely. You know, so. Sweet. Well, hey, we have another one from Brandon. Not the same topic. Although, who knows? Brandon could have told us about that one, too. Uh, Brandon says, great show. Water-based glues and coatings have a property referred to as a minimum film formation temperature. This is the lowest temperature that the glue will work effectively. As you can imagine, they will not work when applied below the freezing point of water because the solvent, water, freezes, preventing proper curing. Chalkiness is an indication the material is below the MFFT, the minimum film formation temperature. There is some variation of the temperature depending on the material composition and other solvents used in formulation. For most wood glues, that temperature is in the low 40s Fahrenheit. DIY coatings are closer to uh, coating. Yeah, coatings are DIY coatings are closer to 32 degrees Fahrenheit. Ironically, the more water-resistant the glue, the higher the working temperature must be, and many times this value is listed on the MSDS. Well, so if you're you interested, go. go look up the MSDS. Bringing you the world of science here at Wood Talk. That's wow. right. That's what we're about. Fancy. Cool. Fancy schmancy. Well, do you guys remember the title of our last show? Yes. It was What's With Brad Pitt? So what is with Brad Pitt? Well, and I want to thank uh, Nick Rouleau. He sent us this email. He said, I heard you wondering about Brad Pitt on the show the other day, and I thought I'd share some interesting tidbits. So uh, Nick was building a, a piece of furniture uh, inspired by um, uh, Rouleau, uh, Art Deco designer. And in doing a little bit of research, he came across this uh, furniture company, uh, Polaro, uh, Polaro Furniture, I think, is the, the, the parent company. Mm-hmm. And... Um, First of all, there is an incredible gallery, incredible portfolio on there. And it's just a fantastic place to go and spend a couple of hours because there's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of photos of finished furniture, a lot of really intricate marquetry. In fact, I actually posted one on Facebook the other day because he actually does Muppet marquetry, which is just awesome. <laughs> you know, Gonzo and the full band in, in oh um Can't let Nicole marquetry. see that. Nicole would want that. It's, it's just awesome. It's so cool. Um, but it is it is kind of neat because this guy's like cabinet maker to the stars. There's all these endorsements like by Larry Ellison and Steve Wozniak and um, basically pick any luminary of Silicon Valley and he's done something for them. Matt Vanderlis? The, yeah, Matt Vanderlis is on there. Yeah, it should be arriving any day now. Yeah. Nice. Um, but – what we would, as this relates to Brad Pitt, is apparently this guy has done work for Brad Pitt. And then Brad Pitt turned around and started sending this cabinet maker designs. And the two of them uh, joined up in a separate company called the Pitt Polero Company. And um, there's a whole line of furniture there that, as I understand it, has been designed by Brad Pitt and executed by, I think it's Frank Polero. Um, it's kind of interesting because at no point does it ever say Brad Pitt. It's just this ambiguous Pitt person designed by Pitt. Yeah, built and it's by not Polaro. like they, they have his face on the webpage, you know, like they're not. <laughs> right, right. So they, they've taken great pains to not be kind of gimmicky and capitalize on, on Brad Pitt's fame. Yeah, which is but, um, super respectable. 
Yeah, and there's some pretty good stuff there. Mm-hmm, there is. There's a, a, I think it's a dining table with this like crazy uh, angled like trestle pattern on the bottom. Imagine just taking a bunch of scraps, cutting random angles and gluing them all together and then putting a tabletop on top of it. Mm-hmm. And it's just, it's a very, very cool design. Um, a lot of mixed media. There's some wood, there's some steel, some mixture of both. But um, the the Polaro website in and of itself is just worth time to, to look through. Yeah. It's like its own, its own Pinterest almost. There's so many images there. Definitely. You know, we had a couple other people email with other things that Brad Pitt has done, specifically taking photographs for a green and green book. And I can't remember what the title was or who sent that in, but um, there were a couple other things that he's, he's been involved in. So the guy's definitely, um, you know, the question was a good one. What's with him? Well, he's, he's into some stuff. So, well, you know, you know, this was kind of off air, and I, I meant I meant to mention this to you guys, but because of all this interest in Brad Pitt and Wood Talk, and his people got a hold of me, and it turns out they want to do a movie about Wood Talk. They're going to have Brad playing me. It looks like Steve Buscemi will be playing Mark, Sweet. and the actor that does Hordor on uh, uh, Game of Thrones will be Shannon. Is so he going to go around and go? Look out is for. he going to go hand tools? Yes. Yeah. Hand tools. <laughs> hand tool. <laughs> That'd be great. I love That's it. I awesome. love that I get to be Steve Buscemi. That's great. He's the best, man. <laughs> no, Steve Buscemi gets to be you. You know what I mean. It's a big honor for him. Yeah, exactly. All right. What do we got next here? Uh, this one is from Matt. Not our Matt. Some other Matt. It could be for me. If this is really good information, it's definitely for me. <laughs> yeah. In regards to the question about disc versus spindle sander, I think a simple solution is to purchase a 10-inch abrasive disc that drops into the table saw. I got one from Sears. It's basically a saw blade without teeth that you stick a sanding pad to. With this solution, I see no need for a standalone disc sander at all. Seems like a moot tool. Moot tool. I love that word. Particularly given how little use it gets. Uh, also, the cost is probably only $15. Now, this is something that I think it's a, it's a neat idea, but my hesitation with it, and maybe someone, maybe we can get another kickback next week explaining why I'm wrong, but my hesitation with this is that th- that's kind of not the, the way pressure is intended to be applied to a table saw. Right. So anytime you do something like that, if you're applying pressure from the side as it's spinning, that has me a little bit concerned long term. Maybe if it's just limited use or a light touch, it's not a big deal. Uh, the second thing is the RPM. You know, like the speed that it's going is a lot faster than you would normally get on a regular disc sander. So I don't know if that's a problem. Maybe it will overheat or or cause like that resin pitch buildup that you get sometimes uh, from a really high speed. I know that I had one of those. Oh, what the what was it called? Was it the final cut blade? Do you guys remember that? Oh yeah, I do yeah, remember. They yeah. had the sandpaper on the side of the blade. Yeah. And that thing would burn and like it worked well for the first few cuts. But the problem is if you use anything that even has like remotely a tendency to burn, um, it would just put that little burn mark there and then it's kind of shot from that point. You got to kind of chip it off and hope you can get more use out of it. So I'd so imagine- Wouldn't it glaze over pretty quickly? Yeah, and that's what would happen and it's because it's going so darn fast. So uh, that would be my only concern and he's right. If you're only using it periodically and it's not that big of a deal, fine. But if this is something you're going to use a lot, those are my two concerns. So if anybody has experience with that and, and thinks that I'm not uh, not on, on target there, let me know. But it's just, just my opinion and sort of my best guess. Well, you know, I I did have one of these years and years ago, but the problem was I had an eight inch table saw and it was a ten inch abrasive disc, so it didn't work. Okay. So, so did, the extent of my experience is I had one. Yeah. Well, it kind of also it. reminds me of my concern with the drum sander in the drill press. 
mm-hmm. like someone doesn't want to get the oscillating spindle sander. So they get those little drums that you could put into the drill press. That's something, again, over time, it feels like putting pressure laterally on those tools isn't the best idea. I don't know. Well, this could be a great example of where engineers are just like, we should just do this, but never have an actual application. Like they have no understanding of it. They're like, in theory, this works really awesome. Yes. Yeah. In theory, a lot of things work really awesome. <laughs> Maybe you just buy a cheap table saw, like a used one on Craigslist that costs like 30 bucks, 40 bucks and uh, put a little sanding disc in it and that'll be your sander. Maybe no, when you had trouble just... aligning your miter slots on your hybrid table saw, because oh, just, the table oh, not your trunnions, <laughs> you could just convert it into a spindle sa- or into a disc sander. We're so much smarter. Ah. We're so much smarter than we were last episode. Oh, yes. good lordy lord! All right, let's uh, let's move into our voicemail. <laughs> um, we've actually got three of them today, and we'll each Ooh. tackle one individually. And uh, the first one here is from Levi. Hey guys, my name is Levi Richardson from Louisiana. Uh, I apologize if this is something that's been hashed out on the show before, but I've only recently discovered your show, as I am a total noob when it comes to woodworking. Uh, my first real project, if you want to call it that, would be a built-in bookcase made from plywood. My first question is about the cut depth when making dados. How deep should you make the data to create a strong joint? Secondly, once the case is built in, what is the best way to trim the face to give it that appearance of higher-quality furniture? Once again, forgive me, the only thing I've created to date is a lazy season from the little pamphlets it loads. Thanks. All right. Thanks for that uh, voicemail, Levi. Uh, You know, I would say, at least for me, and it's not a dead set. I like to go at about three eighths of an inch uh, for dado depth. And a lot of times kind of depends. Sometimes I might even just go a quarter any more than three eighths. I feel kind of sacrifices the integrity of the joint a little bit because you're going more than halfway through the thickness of the material. Uh, so I would say somewhere between a quarter inch deep and three eighths of an inch deep for my standard cabinet dado. Uh, as far as the treatment to make it look like good furniture or fine furniture, uh, really look no further than a face frame. Um, you know, face frames just really dress up a cabinet and there, there's decent looking frameless cabinets, but personally, if you're looking just in terms of general overall first impressions, I actually think that face frame cabinets look better. Uh, so if even in a bookcase, you're probably looking at putting on a solid wood face frame, make your vertical styles about an inch and a half wide and the top and bottom just kind of depend on the dimensions of the the bookcase. Uh, but that will really, really dress it up nicely. Now, I don't often promote guild stuff uh, on the show, but this is, I think, appropriate. We have a project in the guild called the one and two sheet bookcases. And if you're building one, uh, this is probably a good thing for you to watch if you're fairly new to it. It's a very basic sort of beginner-friendly project that shows you how to make a basic plywood bookcase. And we go through all the joinery, multiple options, and we go through the building of a face frame as well. Um, So uh, definitely write up your alley if you're interested in it. And uh, just go to thewoodwhisperergill.com and look for the big icon at the bottom there that says one and two sheet bookcases. And that should help you out. Very nice. Uh, for myself, I know whenever I do dados, I usually go with about a third of the thickness of the material. So mm-hmm. if it was three quarter, I go about a quarter. So about what you do, Mark, it's it's somewhere around about there, depending on what it is. And yeah, there is nothing like a good face frame. In fact, even if, say, your design has the uh, an expansion there that's a little bit too long, say the, the shelf is a little long, that face frame can help to reinforce a lot of that and oh, yeah. again, add that, that, that little touch of beauty. Give you a lot more strength than those shelves. Uh, all right, let's move on to the second one here. This one's for Matt. This is all you, dude. Um, all right. about, Bring it on. It's about planing dried glue. Hey, Mark, Matt, and Shannon. This is Steve from Oregon. Just calling to ask a simple question. 
Paul Ruff is dried glue on plain blades and chisels. I've uh, been doing some glue-ups and wanted to just take my plane to level them out and flat them. But then I started wondering if I need to get all most of the glue off. And for that matter, how bad is glue on sandpaper? So if you can give me some insights, I don't know if it's best to scrape it all off. If I can, or can I just hit it with a plane? Thanks so much. Enjoy your show. Well, when it comes down to it... Um... Really, when it, when glue hardens up, it, it gets pretty tough. Mm-hmm. And I've even noticed when I'm using my scraper from Benchcraft, and this is the second time we've mentioned them today, uh, that that carbide uh, tip that they have on there, it, it definitely it, it goes through it. I guess I'm totally jumping around the, the thing here. I'm not that worried about the uh, <laughs> the effect of the hardened glue on my on my plain blades and the chisel, simply because I can resharpen them if necessary. Ideally. You'll try to remove that glue when it's still a little bit rubbery. It's just so much easier. It comes off so much nicer. The The biggest problem I have with removing the hardened glue is that if if it's a big enough chunk and you approach it the wrong way, you can actually tear the fibers of the wood. I've had that happen in like the most inconvenient locations. That's where I'm more concerned about it. But when it comes down to it, if they're really, really large chunks that are kind of – if you get really aggr- uh, aggressive with the glue, if you mm-hmm. add a lot of it there, I would oftentimes prefer to come in with a scraper, knock it down, take it to a more manageable film almost sitting on top of the wood, and then come through with my blades, and I, I have no problem with it whatsoever. Uh, now, I also might mention the fact that these blades tend to be uh, the blades that I do most most like rough work with. It's not going to be like my really nice number four or my really nice breeze smoother plane blades. Mm-hmm. Uh, those ones are purely for wood only. Uh, so, yeah, again, I, I don't think it's that big of a deal to knock the things out. In fact, actually, Veritas, I believe, sells a uh, hand plane, the quote-unquote hand plane that is uh, for removing glue, uh, and it's basically just a blade with a handle. That's about it. Uh, as for sandpaper, um, I think it just it, it kind of gets gunked up in there. Like we were talking about with the, the spinning blade yeah. or the, the table saw one. Yeah, it just kind of like gets that film on there, if anything. Maybe yeah, tears it a little bit too. It's definitely one of those things where glue, it, it can just be problematic. Even if, let's say, it, let's say for argument's sake, it doesn't mess up your blades. It, at the very least, it's going to pull fibers and then just, you right. know, kind of just it's a mess. So that, like you said, the best thing you could do is just get rid of it first, so it isn't a problem to begin with. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. So it's in fact, I know a, a project I'm working on right now. I had one area that I did not see where some of the glue had built up, and I just went in to knock it down and mm-hmm. ended up putting a nice little tear out effect, like a little dimple. Uh, where that glue is. So it's like, well, now I'm going to have to figure out how to fix that. Right. Uh, and now I just need to pay a closer attention next time to the, uh, to the, the glue. So yeah, hopefully that answers your question. I think cool. a, a little bit of attention needs to be paid to the type of glue too. Um, like True. the plastic resin glues, I wouldn't plane that stuff. It's so hard and so sharp yeah. that it will screw up a blade. But um, on the flip side, I found two-part epoxy planes extraordinarily well. Mm-hmm. And if you think about it, you know, epoxy coatings on like um, boats and uh, fly rods and things like that, um, it actually is a lot easier to work with. Now, I suppose that can probably change by the amount of hardener you put in your epoxy. But for the typical, the typical, um, whatchamacallit, two-part stuff, West Systems, whatever it is that we use in gluing up our projects, 
uh, I found that it shaves really, really well with a hand plane. Would you sh- say it shaves like butter? It does. Like oh. butter. Yeah, the other Highly thing is toxic I, butter. I, I try, like I don't have any problems like for standard wood glue. Don't usually have too much of a problem if it's just like a nice flat spread. But right. if it's real bubbly, you know, like you just didn't touch it at all and you had all this squeeze out, all those bubbles, I get a little bit nervous about sending that over the jointer or something like that because if those are at full hardness, you definitely could uh, wind up causing some nicks and, and whatnot. So, Well, do do this. If, if you really want to get a feel for it, guys, end up taking a piece off that maybe you've scraped off that really hard stuff and just kind of roll around in your hands and say like, ow, that hurts. <laughs> do I want that on my blades? That's painful. <laughs> That's painful stuff. All right, I'm going to walk Shannon, on that in the middle of the night. Uh, we got one for Shannon here on angled mortises. Hey, guys. This is John from Phoenix. Love the show. Keep up the good work. I have a quick question for you. Um, I'm building some chairs. It's my first time uh, building chairs. and It's calling for angled mortises uh, for the joining the side rails to the chair legs. Never done anything like that. It's basically an angled mortise and then floating tenons to simplify it, uh, the joinery. Never done angled mortises. I was wondering what techniques you guys have. Um, I know there are a couple of router jigs out there that you can make. I found one in, uh, I think it's uh, Woodsmith, like episode or, uh, issue 147. Wondering if there was any other ways that you guys had heard of to accurately make uh, angled mortises. Um, so just wanted to know that. And also, uh, one more quick question. The uh, the angle is supposed to be like 85, 85.5 degrees. And besides using a digital angle gauge, is there any other way that you guys know that you could accurately get uh, the correct angle repeatedly? So anyway, I appreciate the... Appreciate the show. Guys, keep up the good work. Thanks. I have one hyphenated word, multi-router. Uh-huh. <laughs> it's only $3,000. I, I think it's funny that, that <laughs> I've been the one tasked to answer this just because you can tell by his tone and the fact that he mentions a fraction of a degree. Yeah. That, it's uh, all power yeah, tools. This, this guy and, and he and I work very differently. So give him advice that he absolutely won't use. <laughs> well, <laughs> this is one of those reasons that I did start working with hand tools because I found that cutting angled mortises with hand tools was so much easier than all this jiggery and and replicating stuff. So I, I cut it with a chisel and a bevel gauge set to my angle and I hold the bevel gauge up to the chisel and I chop at that angle. And the key is getting that chisel started at that angle. And for the most part, the chisel will kind of stay the course once you get it started. Um, so that's the, the answer that he definitely is not going to want to hear. Cause I, you know, I just, I don't know. I somehow think that he's going to be like, no, I'm going to use my router and I'm not going to use any of your stupid chisels. So, um, there are certainly a lot of jigs out there. Um, all of them, essentially it's, you're creating a platform, um, that is held at a certain angle. And in my, in, in my head, I would, create that platform and I would put like runners on either side of it to trap the router base plate so that you're trapping it into a pure linear motion. And then of course you could add stop blocks and things for the the top and bottom of the mortise. That whole platform then sits at an angle and you could create a saddle or something like that that slips down over your workpiece, traps it, holds it in place, and then holds that router up at that, that particular angle. The problem you run into is he's talking about loose tenon joinery. So it's real easy to get it into 
say the back rail of of the chair, but then cutting the opposite mortise into the ingrain, the narrow end of the side rail, that's when things get a little bit more difficult. You can make the same type of jig, but now you're kind of trapping around a much smaller surface area. Mm -hmm. And that's when you see jigs that pop up that look very similar to uh, like a wood rat or a Lee FMT jig where there is, again, a base plate that the router sits on, and then there's like a, um, an L-shaped section in the back that the, the rail, the side rail, actually clamps into. And you can change that angle all the time and cut that in there. What I wonder is, um, he's, I think he said that this joinery is made simpler by the fact that it's loose tenon joinery. I almost wonder if the joinery would be simpler by cutting an integral tenon and the angled mortise. Instead of making two angled mortises and joining it with loose tenon, I feel like it would be easier because you can make a jig relatively easy to cut into that wider surface area of the back rail. Mm-hmm. Um, it's that that other one, that ingrain mortise that is that much harder. Um, so certainly, and and Woodsmith actually is the place that I think of because they've got a, they always have really cool jigs in there. Yeah. Um, in some in fact, they have a magazine called Shopsmith, which is like dedicated to stuff like that. Um, as far as maintaining your angle, I look no further than a bevel gauge. Um, now setting that angle is, is one thing. Um, and you can use digital angle gauges and things like that. But I've actually found, especially when you're talking about chairs, that doing a full size drawing is going to be your best bet. Um, so that you can actually take your bevel gauge and lay it against your drawing and set it off of that. Um, I also think that it's just a good idea to help you kind of wrap your head around everything that's going on. Um, is there more than one angle in this chair? Um, that's the that's the time to figure it out. Mm. And what angle I'm actually cutting? Is it is it 85 and a half degrees or is it the complementary angle to that? Um, in other words, what is that, like 12? <laughs> I can add. 15? 14 and a half Oh, 80, what's the 85 and a half is what it is? Yeah, yeah. yeah so, you know, in, and if you were to set it, because a lot of times you, you go to your digital gauge and, you know, okay, it's going to be 85 and a half and you set it to 85 and a half and then you start tilting your table saw over and it's like, wait a minute, it doesn't go to 85 and a half. Right. And then you have to do some subtraction and figure out exactly what angle am I setting it at because the angle is a measurement from some plane up to that angle. Well, depending on where you orient that starting point, if you're orienting the starting point vertical or horizontal, the 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 number of that angle is going to change. So actually drawing it out, grab yourself some poster board or whatever and draw out um, the top-down view of that chair. And actually I would draw out this the, the elevation, um, what's that called, the plan? Um, what's the third one in traditional drawings? Elevation, plan, and... SketchUp. Horizon? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> whatever. Um, everyone I know that, that really does a lot of chair work, that's the first place they start because it's really the only way you can kind of get a feel for how the things go together. Yeah. Once you've got that drawing, then who cares if it's 85 and a half or 78.83, you put your bevel gauge up against it, you know, on the drawing, you set it, and then you take that to your tool. Um, and you can build your jigs off of that angle. You can set your table saw, set whatever you're, you're cutting off of that bevel gauge. Well, and the thing is, it's so easy to knock the bevel gauge out and then resetting it to the drawing just kind of adds that one more chance for something to go wrong. So if it's an angle you're going to be using a lot, I would say take that first bevel angle and go ahead and make yourself just an angle jig out of plywood. 
uh, right. from scrap material. And that then becomes the in-stone setup jig that you can use over and over to get the tool set up in case you tear a setup down and realize you have to do it again or you build another chair a month from now. Um, you'll be able to do that. So so definitely make as many of these reference jigs as possible. Um, but yeah, I mean, the drawing is, is the, a great solution because if it fits on the drawing, then it will fit in the chair, you know, like if everything yeah, makes and, sense. And let's face it, chairs aren't that big, you know, it's not yeah. like you're, you're have to do a full size drawing of a break front cabinet or something like that. Yeah. You know, the chair is, is butt sized. So Even a piece she got of a big um, old butt. It's not that big. Oh, it should work for me. For Shannon got a big then. old butt. Uh, you can do um, uh, just like a piece of poster board. I mean, not the buy poster board, use paper, but that size is about all yeah. you really need for them. What, what I would probably do, I would whole... just go with a stool. There you go. What do you think of the whole loose tenon thing? Am I losing my mind there? Yeah. Going probably. with an integral tenon? I mean, obviously loose tenons are a perfectly strong, viable form of joinery, but I feel like that's making it actually more complicated. It can be because trying to route that without your Lee FMT, your multi-routers, you know, like that, that sort of elaborate setup, it's a lot easier to put some sort of angled mortise in a jig when you've got room to work. When you're working on the end grain of a small piece of uh, stock, that is a little bit different. Uh, so if there is a way to do it with an integral tenon, I actually agree that that probably would be the the easier way to go. But that integral tenon may also have some sort of angled nature to it. The shoulders might be angled. Um, we don't really know. We'd have to see the design of the chair. So there might be something there that's a little more complicated where it might just be easier to bevel it and then put in a mortise that's perpendicular to that end grain face, whatever that may be. You know, so it's, it's, it's tough to, to tell without seeing the design, but I think I, I agree. My instinct says that the integral tenon might be the simpler way to go for that. Right. Cause generally, you know, there's, there's debate on whether you do an inline tenon or an angled tenon. Um, in this particular instance, an inline tenon that's running parallel to the long axis of the board and then just cutting your angled shoulders. I mean, that's just a matter of changing the, the bevel angle on your table saw, you know, and cutting those shoulders. Um, out from there. That to me is a heck well, of a lot easier. That actually is trickier than it sounds. Um, I oh, think there's right. a there's a Jeff Miller <laughs> hand tool guy here going just draw the line and saw to it. So. Yeah, yeah. There's a Jeff Miller article, if I a blog post, if I remember correctly, uh, where he talks about cutting angled shoulders. That is really useful. There's a little table yes. saw trick that he does because it's not quite as easy as just setting the bevel, cutting it, set the bevel, flip the workpiece because you got to get those shoulders in perfect alignment. Um, I, I can't remember the details, but I'll see if I can find a link and I'll, I'll put that in the show notes. All right. So you guys want to move on I would on just to... like to point out that the reason why Shannon got that question was because I said not it before he <laughs> had a chance to <laughs> That's answer. Right. It was in, uh, well, in order it's, received. It's funny because Mark sent us all an email saying, here are the voicemails and you and Matt, you can fight over. Mark took the bookcase one. He's like, you guys can fight <laughs> over it. And I was like, oh, angled mortises. I've actually written a blog post on that. Oh, I can totally answer that. And I start listening to it going, this guy's not going to want to hear what I have to say. <laughs> I was just going to say it. I suddenly was doing a search and I'm like, what to use? Inline versus angled tenants by Shannon Rogers? <laughs> yeah, seriously. That was one of those things where I Googled it. And I was like, damn it. I wrote that. I don't need that. Right. That's great. Uh, all right. Let's move into our emails. We've got one here from, well, here's the funny thing. All three emails are from Chris. Probably different Chris's. I don't know. Uh, we'll Is it Chris with a K or nope. Chris with a C? Chris with a C and then two other regular Chris's. But anyway, this is the Chris show now. Uh, he says, <laughs> I've recently been going back through older episodes of your show and Mark commented on his purchase of an Incra iBox. Uh, I've seen, excuse me. He says, I've been searching your websites to hear what he and or other guys uh, say about it. Blah, blah, blah. How do you compare 
uh, to a regular box joint jig that you can construct at home uh, and he can't really find any good information on it, wants to hear our thoughts. So I don't know if either of you have any experience with this, but I did purchase this because I was intrigued by it. And in fact, I it was my uh, shop drawer, cabinet drawers uh, project that, that made me look into this because I didn't want to just do um, dados and rabbits on my shop drawers. I wanted something that had really good, strong corner joinery, and I didn't want to do the whole dovetail thing. So I was like, you know what? Someone mentioned this Incra iBox jig. They said it's fantastic. It's really well-reviewed, uh, almost five stars out of 199 reviews on, um, on Amazon.com. So it's like, okay, it's intriguing. Let me take a look at it. The problem is, tell you right off the bat, it's $154. So it's not cheap. But this thing is amazing. Like in terms of just making perfect box joints, and it takes a little bit to dial in everything, but I knocked out, like, you know, maybe spent uh, an hour, it was my first time using it too, so it took me an hour to get the jig set up and get my test pieces done, and then I started cutting, and I was done in no time on this thing, and every one of my drawers has just dead-on perfect uh, box joints, and the great thing about it, unlike your typical shop-made box joint jig, if you mess something up and it's a little bit loose, they can be kind of tricky to finesse. And okay, I'm just gonna, I need a few extra thousandths here to make this fit better. It's a little hard, harder to do on a shop-made box joint jig. This, on the other hand, can be just dialed into perfection. So you just do your test scraps, make sure your scraps are about the same size or the exact same size as your actual work pieces. And holy smokes, this thing is awesome. So if you're going to be doing a lot of box joints, I highly recommend it if you don't mind the asking price. It's not to say that you can't get good results with a good shop made jig, but like anything in woodworking, sometimes there's a purchasable uh, solution out there, a commercial product that you can buy that will solve your problems and give you great results uh, right out of the box. And this is one of those times. So very, very cool. Yeah, good stuff. Sweet. Well, hey, we have another email from oh, from Chris. Yeah, Chris, what a surprise. Oh, that's a shock. And, and this Chris says, I'm working on my hand tool skills since I'm without a shop. I'm doing some dovetail work going between my rickety full hand cut tails and more reasonable looking assisted hand cut for noobs using the Veritas Magnetic Dovetail Guide. I want to buy a Western-style dovetail saw to work with this guide, but it requires a fairly deep-cut depth. Since I don't have lots of money to spend, I thought I might just use a tenoning saw, which could do double duty. The only ones I've seen on, in a budget are the PAX models or the Veritas tenoning saws. The latter seeming it, like it would crazy huge. What? Wait, okay, hold on. Let me, the latter seeming <laughs> like it would crazy huge to use for dovetails. Oh, okay, so the tenoning saw, crazy huge to use. Got it. Would it be crazy to cut dovetails with a tenoning saw, freehand, or with this jig? And which tenoning jig, uh, tenoning saw would you recommend? Either the above or another model. So I'm not gonna I'm not gonna give any advice on the tenoning saw, Shannon. If you want to jump in on that part, I do want to talk about this dovetail jig that Chris was mentioning. Have either of you seen this? I actually used to own one of these, and then I sold it last year and felt guilty for passing it on to somebody. I'll I'll be honest. <laughs> this is this is one of those things that. Maybe insiders certainly, but also outsiders looking in would find ridiculous. That's not, yes. I don't, I don't necessarily say it's ridiculous. I mean, I use a honing guide to sharpen and that makes my sharpening go better. I could see why someone would want to use this, but from an outsider perspective, using a, a magnetic system to hold your saw straight, um, as a woodworker, you just feel like one of the things you should be able to do is saw straight. Right. Um, so it is one of those training wheel products that I think some people, I think this is a very, um, 
uh, polarizing product. Like some people will have no problem with it and love it. And other people are going to be like, you've got to be kidding me. Right. Well, that was when we do a show along this line a while ago, like more than a year ago that generated, this was before kickback existed (laughs) and it would have generated a lot of kickback because. Yeah. I'm pretty sure we, we, we definitely covered something like this. And I, you know, I totally get where Chris is coming from on this one, because I remember the reason I bought this was I was so intimidated by hand cut dovetails, but I wanted a hand cut dovetails that this seemed to be like that perfect solution for it. And I, I will give it, there are some pros. It, it, it's super easy to set up. And the nice thing about it is it comes in two different settings. Remember, there's that whole debate once in a while about what angle is it a one to six? Is it a one to eight? That kind of a thing. They, mm-hmm. they have it for whatever one you want to go with. Uh, I will admit that when I was first starting with this, I felt like I was getting far more accurate saw lines with it. Uh, and it does give you the sense of complete confidence. But the biggest con uh, con of this and, and i don't mean con is in they're trying to sell you something that's really horrible uh the face of the blade guide actually gets marred up really really easily mm. and it can totally hinder the the cut even when you're using the the saw that they recommend which is a, a flush uh cutting saw that they particularly sell it's a dazuki style saw um it requires a thin blade in fact actually in the instructions they even talk about what size saws that you should use and not use because the friction pad that I mentioned kind of gets marred up a little bit. It's like 0.05, not no, 0.005. I just lost my mark. 0.005 inches proud of the guide face. And it was talking about how oftentimes uh, a Western style dovetail saw, or I guess even the tenoning saw, is the, the set on the teeth sometimes is that 0.005. So we'll actually start hitting against the uh, material the wrong way and it will kind of ruin both of them because after a while you can kind of start messing up the teeth mm-hmm. uh, which I actually started cutting into the uh, the metal of the, the jig itself so it definitely did a number on the teeth because I did try this with a western style saw um, and and see what else do I have here uh, you know and really when it comes down to it the, the last thing I just want to point out is if you just take a moment to actually practice you'll be surprised at how fast you can start nailing those straight lines just using your saw without the guide itself. This, unfortunately, to me, is one of those, it's a crutch. It really is. Yeah. And I, I mean it in the nicest way, Chris, is if, you're, if, you're, if you don't have the shop at the moment and you're doing this to kind of get a feel for your, your hand tool skills, throw it away or maybe set it aside and sell it to somebody else and feel guilty about it also like I did. <laughs> uh, and just go for the all-out do it by hand without any type of uh, of jig on there. You'll be so much more happy and satisfied, and maybe you can get one of those fancy schmancy dovetail saws rather than having to figure out which tenoning saw to go with. Right. I think the biggest issue people have with dovetails is in that initial starting of the cut um, where maybe it jumps off their line or they don't get the angle just right, um, and going with a big tenon saw might be a little bit of a problem there. Um, the more weight you have out on the toe of the saw, the harder it is going to be to get that cut to start smoothly. And um, a, a dovetail saw, obviously, it's going to be shorter. It's going to be lighter. You're going to have a little bit more control over that that toe line. And you can get it to start really, really smoothly. So, you know, if all you're doing is dovetailing, um, get yourself a dovetail saw. But if you're trying to think of something that's going to be more of a utility-type saw... Um, you know, there's other things that come, come to bear there and it looks like he's just looking for dovetails. So I would, I would get a dovetail saw and 
you know, I, I've used both of the ones that he mentions and they're both perfectly fine. Um, there's no reason to go, you know, break the bank with getting a super fancy dovetail saw. You can always upgrade to something later. What are your thoughts as someone who, who teaches people how to do a lot with hand tools? What are your thoughts on this guide system? Not to rehash what we may have talked about in the past, but I'm curious. Do you, do you think it's good or you think he should just get away from it and start freehand cutting as much as he can as soon as possible? I think that what Matt said earlier is an absolute crutch. Um, it actually can do more harm than good, I think, mm-hmm. because you're not getting a feel for the body mechanics. You're not getting a feel for how the saw should run when it runs freely. Um, and you will eventually, you'll say, okay, I'm going to ditch this, and you're going to take like 20 steps back, and you're just going to get really, really frustrated. And in the in the end, it, it really is not that hard. Um, it, yes, there's some practice that involves, but if you actually do dedicated practice time, and, you know, saw 50 straight lines in the end of a board, you'll be surprised at how quickly your skills get better. Um, I've, I've written about this before, but it's one of those things where um, you think, uh, okay, I don't have a bunch of time to practice. I just want to build some furniture. And in the process of building furniture, you, you start to get better. And then you move on to something else. Yeah. So uh, imagine a chest of drawers and you're like, wow, my dovetails are getting really good. And then you don't do them again for six months. Um, and you start all over again. If you actually take some time to to just break down the dovetailing process into the angle cuts and the straight cuts and the chopping out of the baselines or sawing out of the baselines, however you do it, and just do that kind of over and over again for 30 minutes, you'd be surprised how much better you are. Mm. Um, just the whole idea of restricting a handsaw into any kind of fixed motion, it flies in the face of how handsaws work. Um, and it just, it's not, it's just not going to work. Um, handsaws need to, they got to be free to move, man. You got to let them move. You don't so have to say I'm fully. I, I think it's worse actually to do this. Yeah. To set yourself further back. Yeah. You know, a total aside, I'm fully entertained by Shannon's menagerie in the background. <laughs> Seriously. What the hell? Shut up. It's Is like, there a flood coming, Shannon? You got two of everything, right? Woof, tweet. Woof, tweet. Woof, tweet. <laughs> It's great. It's good podcasting right there. And that's I'm why we like don't do a show in front of a live audience. Go, Shut up. Uh, all right, Shannon, you're up. We get, we're actually running long here. <laughs> all right. Let's see here. This is from, wait a minute. This is from Chris. Yep. What a surprise. Chris says, <laughs> I finally decided to pull the trigger on a new concept saw. I'm having a hard time deciding between the five inch fret saw or their coping saw. Reviews on the interweb seem to be split. While limited cutting of veneer from marquetry isn't out of the question in my future, I would really be using it primarily for waste removal on dovetails. Um, he said he actually read my review of the fret saw, was wondering if we could give some definite recommendations on which way to go. And when I did a, a video on the fret saw, the coping saw didn't even exist yet, so I can see why he's looking for more. Um, I actually started considering this myself. Um, the I, I'm a I'm a big fan of the company. I'm a big fan of the new concepts fret saw. It's kind of a game changer as far as how those little frame coping saw style things work. Um, I use my new concepts fret saw all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, from lately, I've been um, playing around actually with some veneer, and uh, but I usually mostly for cutting out the waste between dovetails. I'll do small pieces when I've got cut curves and things like that. I have a bird's mouth fixture that I use with that. And I started thinking, you know, would this coping saw, would it be useful in my shop? And 
my decision is no. I decided not to go ahead and get it because I can change the blades in my fret saw from a more uh, uh, higher, uh, excuse me, lower pitch count, uh, nine points per inch blade in my fret saw, and I can cut through dovetail ways really quickly that way. Now, granted, I only have a five inch long blade, so my my actual stroke length is is smaller, but I. I have a hard time believing that it's going to be that much better if I go with a 12-inch long fret saw. So then I grabbed my turning saw, which is a 12-inch blade, and I started cutting out dovetail ways. And I can't say that it actually went much faster because that longer blade needed a wider blade in order to, to stand up over that longer 12-inch. So with, um, with the turning saw or with a coping saw, you have to kind of make these swooping cuts in order to get down to the corner and then turn around and go back the other way to cut out the corner. With a fret saw, the blade is so fine that I can go to the bottom of my dovetail saw curve, turn 90 degrees and cut straight across the baseline. And it may cut a little bit slower because of that shorter throw, but the fact that I can only do it, I can do it in one cut means it actually cuts it out faster. Um, And if it ends up being then you want to switch over to something more fine. Like say you are going to do some marquetry work. You can very easily get scroll saw blades in the 28 points per inch range. And I actually just did this. I switched it over um, and I was cutting out a a pattern for something. I needed to be really right on my line because it was going to be too hard to get in there and try to finesse it with chisels and rasps and everything later. So I was really working to be straight on my line switched to a 28 uh, points per inch blade in that fret saw, and it, it, it left a perfectly smooth surface. It cut really, really cleanly. There was really no need for that bigger saw. So, you know, for the typical woodworker kind of furniture maker, I don't think so. I think the coping saw is that um, more of the contractor style work where you need that more utilitarian saw. And I, I just, I don't think it's necessary. Cool. All right. Well, that does it for email. Let's jump into the final part of the show where we tell you how you can support us because that's uh, that's what friends do, right? They help each that's other. Right. That's it's right. It's called cash. Cash, credit card, um, no small children. Yes. Muzzle. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, recurring donations. You could do that at woodtalkshow.com. Look in the left-hand column and you'll see a couple of links where you can give us a uh, you know, sort of a $1, $2, small amounts, very small amounts, you know, that for the price of a cup of coffee. Uh, in many cases, less than, I mean, if you go to Starbucks, it's a lot less than a cup of coffee, but anyway, uh, you could help us out and that's always, always appreciated. And, uh, let's see, you could buy a wood talk t-shirt at twwstore.com Cause those look really good. They're selling and well. They look so amazing on you. I mean, I can't emphasize it. I'll send you a picture with me and mine. And I look it's like blow your mind totally. And you know, the good thing about that is like you get this wood talk t-shirt, you wear it to one of the woodworking shows or some woodworking event and people automatically like realize just by looking at you, how awesome you are. That's right. Yeah. It takes very, you a whole nother level. It really does. Very important thing to do. Uh, also you could leave us a review in the iTunes store, which we always appreciate. Just look us up and uh, click on ratings and reviews. And then you can click that star rating and leave us a nice little review like Derek Morelli did. He says, this is a great show to listen to if you're interested in woodworking at all. The dynamics between Mark, Matt and Shannon are usually hilarious. What are they when they're not hilarious? Uh, hilarious. Hilarious. Uh, not to mention the fact that it's a great mix of resources for info on hand tools, power tools, with great advice on what to look for while shopping for tools, all while not sounding snooty whatsoever, except for Shannon. 
<laughs> I listen to their <laughs> I listen to their backlog of shows while working, and I'm starting to worry that there are only 60 episodes left for me to listen to, which means he'll probably maybe in a couple of months he'll hear this. So, right, exactly. Hi, Derek. <laughs> welcome to the future. Um, although I do miss, actually, welcome to the past. I do uh, miss Tom's tips for the, the tips as well as the intro. So far, my favorite moment in the episodes I've listened to is Mark and Shannon's duet of Tom's tips in episode 78. <laughs> Guys, I don't even remember that. I don't either. Yeah, I, I must have blacked out. <laughs> What's up with that? There's probably a lot of memories that uh, we blocked out <laughs> from early Wood Talks. You know what I miss? I miss the tips from Carrie Holtman. Yeah, me yes. too. But she's playing the mellifluous with, Carrie Holtman. She's playing with leather now. She's not interested in woodworking anymore. Yeah. And that's not true. I'm sure she's doing plenty of woodworking, but uh, yeah, still better than anything I could do. So. I know, right? What's up with that? How dare <laughs> I she? hear she's and, making a frame that she's going to be tanning her own leather soon. Have you seen the leather stuff that she's done? Yes. Yeah, like she, she's she's one of those people you really love to hate. She's like a she's golden like everything golden she child. touches is awesome. The golden child of of crafts, like anything craft related, she just knocks out of the park. Well, thanks for making us look bad, Carrie. Well, you know, since she's so good, maybe she can get really good at investment banking. Carrie, I'll send you some money. <laughs> yeah. Since you seem to have this golden touch. That would be good. Yeah, send her a few bucks. All right, Matt, how about you give him the contact info? We'll get out of here. All right, folks. Hey, do you have a comment, a question, a suggestion? Uh, there's several different ways you can contact us. Even if your name isn't Chris, you can leave a voicemail on Skype. Our username is Woodtalk Online. You can call our voicemail line at 623-242-5180. Email us at woodtalkonline at gmail.com. Or you can leave us a comment on our Woodtalk Facebook page. And if you're ever looking for the show notes or the downloads from, say, today's show, or maybe like Derek, who's about 60 episodes behind, who knows? Maybe it'll be a different website by the time you get caught up with this episode. Mm-hmm. But you're going to find all that stuff over at woodtalkshow.com. Awesome stuff. Well, thanks for listening, everybody. And don't forget to have your birds spayed or neutered or just tape their beaks <laughs> shut, whichever whichever you prefer. Or give them back to the person that, who mm-hmm. dropped them at your house for pet sitting. <laughs> totally. All right. Thanks for listening, everybody. We'll catch you next time. See ya. See ya. about this and other shows, visit frogpants.com. Audio program so good, it's like you're there. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.